Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Ashton Rosen from Lower Carbon Capital to discuss capital formation tips for general partners. Ashton shares her amazing journey working in the nonprofit and NGO space in Washington, D.C. before making a complete 180 and joining the fast-paced world of hedge funds as an IR manager. Ashton explains how her time working in investor relations at a hedge fund opened her eyes to how other asset classes were so far behind when it came to managing investor relationships and how the role at Lower Carbon came to be. Ashton and I dig into her transition into venture capital and how her role working with one of the greatest venture investors, Chris Saka, as the head of capital, launched her down the rabbit hole of extensive research on LPs and relationship building. Lastly, Ashton shares her tips and tricks for other emerging managers struggling to raise capital and how narrowing down your target list of LPs when fundraising is a better approach than spraying and praying. But before we jump into this week's interview, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. All right, welcome back to the tank, John. Some pretty crazy news just developed in the last 24 hours. We have Boston-based venture firm OpenView abruptly shutting down and stopping making new investments and cutting off 74 people on their staff. You know, the firm sent a letter to LPs, which I was able to get a hold of, basically stating after 17 years, the firm has decided to not make any new investments from its current Fund 7 vehicle. Uh, the firm started in 2006, so it's been around for quite some time and made some incredible investments in, you know, companies like Calendly and Expensify. But I'm not sure what you have to say on this, but it definitely seems very odd. You know, they just recently raised $570 million in March, you know, and now they're entering into a voluntary suspension period and will focus on supporting existing portfolio companies through reserve funding and board seats. I mean, from what I've heard, the layoffs are following the departure of obviously numerous dealmakers and partners, one notably being Mackie Craven, you know, and obviously with fund returns on paper falling below peers, you know, hearing Mackie was on his way out, he had a lot of the LP relationships, and this may have triggered key man clauses as well. So would love to get your take on this. Very shocking and incredible firm that we're co-investors with in VoiceFlow. So maybe you can share a little bit more about this. I'm just as confused as you is that there has to be more because frankly, if this was the basis, you'd have a heck of a lot more VCs that would be shutting down on this basis. The thing that's very confusing that, yeah, maybe the previous fund is going to be a disaster like most VCs who way overdid it you know, over the last few years, but they just raised this fund. They're going to get new valuations on you know, much more effective pricing. So the fact that they've raised, the future is bright, but I don't see it making sense whatsoever. And even on a key man, th there's more GPs in there. So I would be surprised if that had occurred. And the last thing I would just say is this quote suspension of the fund, you just knifed your fund because if you're an LP, would you ever put another dollar in this firm again? I certainly wouldn't. Well, I think the hard thing, so let's walk back for people who may not be familiar with all the things we're talking about, key man clause, you know, LPAs, things like that. If you have a key man risk triggered, first of all, that's something that either is malfeasance, something breaking the law, you know, there's a legal case against someone, you know, I don't think any of that happened here. So that's why I'm wondering if key man clauses were actually triggered. You're right. There was probably many other partners that I could have stepped into that key man position. The other thing that is weird is that like 
you have this 570 million raised, but probably not called. And now you're putting this voluntary suspension period on. Like, why would an LP even make those capital calls? I I would suspect again. I don't know what the agreement says, but I would suspect that is cause for the LPs never to deliver. So that's why I just said I just think this is effectively knifed. And on the key man clause, so what happens is usually it's the general partners, and there's usually like if one general partner leaves, there's usually nothing called. If there is, you know, a material number that leave. What happens is there is a period where you get to cure the problem. This is why I just don't think it's it's that issue. I, I do think we're going to hear more. What really is going on here? Right. So in the LP letter they sent, it says, moving forward, the partners will focus on maximizing the value of existing portfolio companies while working to determine the best strategy for the firm. Starting with first principles, the senior partners will spend the coming weeks and months developing a strategic plan for open view going forward and how best to achieve the desired results of this sharpened focus on maximizing portfolio value. We will come back to our fund seven LPs with our new strategic plan within a 180 day period detailed in the LPA. It's basically lipstick to what you know their lawyers are telling them probably to say. I guess what would you say to founders who have already received capital from OpenView, an amazing firm with incredible, you know, platform and offerings to all the founders, what would you say to founders who've been backed by them in the past? Like just move on. Don't expect a reserve check. Don't expect any of the reserves that you think they're going to follow on. I would say go out and uh, you got to develop new relationships. You know what I found amusing by that letter? It seemed to imply that the partners are now going to focus in on maximizing uh, the portfolio. Really? What the hell were you doing this whole time? Not maximizing? I just thought it was nonsense. Yeah. I mean, this isn't the only fund that's had troubles. We obviously saw the blow up with Tiger. We've seen, you know, the European fund get acquired. I think there's still more shoes to fall here. And I think the maybe the lesson I would say from all this is it's always best to underpromise and overdeliver sometimes. Not to say that OpenView is overpromising, but overall in general, overpromise, underdeliver. It's probably not a good one. It's better to do the opposite. And also, maybe not build out such a massive organization when your industry kind of controls your destiny. Yeah, that was the other thing. They actually had, I, I, I didn't realize how many employees they had. And there was commentary that at 570 million, what is it? It's 70, 80 employees. Whoa, that is a big, big number. So I'm wondering whether that factored into the uh, analysis. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some probably great talent there that's going to be picked up and put to work elsewhere. So that's the great thing about the ecosystem, I would say, is that there's always great talent to be circling around. You know, moving on here, our friend Elon Musk is back in the news saying that his ex-AI startup is looking to raise a billion dollars. People can't stop throwing money at this guy. I mean, the company has raised $135 million total according to filings uh, and that they announced in July. And now they've released their own version of a chat GPT competitor called Grok on November 4th. You know, and he said it that they're trying to make it more available to all subscribers you know, on X uh, and that investors will own 25% of X.ai. So what are your thoughts here? You know, he probably will get the money and he'll probably make good use of it. I'm a big fan of Elon Musk from an innovation perspective. I am less so of a fan from investing in his 800 different <laughs> distractions. You know, my biggest question is, 
if you're an investor uh, in his business, where are the full-time and attention clauses that you would typically see? The guy is distracted with so many businesses, and yet his two big ones being Tesla and SpaceX. If I'm an investor in any one of those businesses, I would be deeply concerned. Not that this guy doesn't have an unbelievable capacity to multitask, but you can't. And the one, the big dog right now is X, that's sucking him in and taking so much of his valuable brain time. And now he's got this one here. This is the part that just completely perplexes me and why no one is just saying, dude, take it easy and focus in on getting a few of these across the line. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I he's a human being that only has the same amount of hours in the day that we have. Yes, he probably has 100x more efficient than we are. But I will say he probably has the ability to attract the best talent and operators around him to run these companies and leverages his brand and his reputation to fundraise for him, which is super important, right? Like kind of like Richard Branson, like he doesn't operate all the businesses that he was running under Virgin, but he attracts great talent, sometimes not great talent, as we saw with some of the blowups in Richard's portfolio. But the thing about Elon, I think, is that he is obviously very vocal and hands-on when he needs to be, when shit hit is hitting the fan. But he also has the ability to attract some incredible operators. So maybe that's what investors see as uh, also the benefit of being a part of the aura. Yeah. I mean, he does attract them for sure, but he loses the, the churn is extremely high as well. And the cost is high to get them too, probably. Yeah. So the volatility. So I, again, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on, you know, X, <laughs> Linda Yaccarino, man, she, she's going to get the humanitarian of the year award because with his vocalization undermines what she does and says and maybe it's just the uh, x but now that he's going into a llm investment i'm going to guess he's going to be extremely vocal on this one here as well too so that's the only thing that i would just say all i would say is i would love to see her contract package i would oh, love to goodness. see how they structured that thing is there a one-year clift is there a four-year vest is there uh you know clauses in there man that would be fun to see you know, something we haven't talked about in a while that's starting to pick up some momentum is crypto and Bitcoin. I mean, wow, what a gain we've seen for Bitcoin. In the last year, it's up 160%. All of this comes around all the uh, ETF approvals coming through the US. And obviously, we saw all the big you know, mutual funds and institutional investors piling in ahead of time as they went forward and probably had some inside information around these approvals. But you know, it's been reaching new highs. It broke through 40,000 over the weekend. You know, it's 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 holding up pretty well here. Everyone has this thing about they're hating Bitcoin, they're loving Bitcoin. But the one thing I will say that's the most impressive stat is that the volume that's trading represents a tiny amount of the actual holders of Bitcoin. Like HODL is actually happening. 80% is not transacting. So the wallets that hold Bitcoin have never transacted in like years. So the people that are trading on it now are truly just the speculators, which is an incredible asset in its in its own right. You know, think about if nobody transacted in US dollars, like you wouldn't have a market, you wouldn't have an economy. But for Bitcoin, it works somehow. So I think there is something here. There are calls for a hundred thousand in Bitcoin price by the end of the year, but it definitely feels much more of an asset than people thought it was in the in in the beginning. People are really holding on to it and not just trading it back and forth because 80% just sits in the same wallets over and over. 
What are your thoughts there? Yeah, like like gold. So you know, full disclosure. So I I hold a fair bit of Bitcoin and Ether. I don't hold anything else, but I hold them for two different reasons. So Bitcoin, I simply hold as a store of value. I fully assume that if it goes to zero and it's worthless, it's not going to change my life. And and it's really the asymmetric upside risk here that I thought was uh, very intriguing. It's being triggered by what you just said, the the approvals of the ETFs in the United States, but that is not a good enough reason. It's just simply saying that there is more folks who will participate in this, but it doesn't really speak to any underlying value. Ether, on the other hand, the reason why I hold that is not for its store of value, but rather for its uh, utility in in contracts. That, to me, is a technological holding. That is my bigger long-term hold. And if we ever get Ether working the way we think it should be working, I think that's where I could see the value of that asset. But Bitcoin, I'm just like everyone else. I don't know what's going on there, but I'd rather have some. And if it goes crazy, great. Uh, and if I lose it, uh, you know what? Uh, just another dumb investment. I, I have many of those. So just one more. <laughs> just one more. Exactly. I haven't touched mine in almost 10 years now. I haven't touched it. So it's just one of those things. Set it and forget it. So pass it down to the grandkids. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us in the tank today, John. All right. Thanks, Matt. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Ashton Rosen from Lower Carbon Capital. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Ashton. Thank you for having me. You know, Ashton, you have a pretty interesting background growing up in South Africa before making your way over to San Diego and your path into venture capital and private investing is definitely non-traditional. But before we get into all that juicy stuff, it would be great if you can give our listeners a brief background on sort of how you grew up and sort of how you made your way through Washington, D.C. in the nonprofit space and eventually into the capital markets and asset management space. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as you mentioned, I was born in Johannesburg, uh, South Africa, and immigrated with my family uh, down to San Diego when I was young. There happened to be a very large community of South African Jews in San Diego, which is, which is remarkable. And I grew up in that community. Um, but given uh, you know my family you know, is from abroad, I think I always had this sort of vision in, in the back of my mind that once I graduated, I wanted to work outside of the United States and, and get experience with other cultures and, and other communities. I didn't quite know how I was going to do that, but as I sort of made my way through both high school and then into college, um, I stumbled across what is known as disability studies. And so UCLA, which is where I went for my undergrad, has uh, a very unique program in disability studies, which is basically sort of studying the, the human rights of, of people with disabilities. And I was totally taken by the fact that this is an incredibly large and vulnerable population that is very, very rarely mentioned. And I found it even more interesting to think about this in sort of an international or an emerging markets context. And so that became sort of my mission. I tried to figure out how to bring my my work in international development uh, together with disability studies and did a bunch of research on sort of the economic value add that people with disabilities can have in emerging markets. That propelled me to, to your point to go out to Washington, uh, D.C. and to do a bit of advocacy on the ground with some of the, the largest nonprofits um, that are all headquartered 
in DC for people with disabilities and ended up getting a fellowship uh, as I graduated from from university to go work for an international NGO based in Jerusalem, um, where I, I worked on sort of the access for people with disabilities and higher education settings. Did that for quite a while, um, was, you know, honestly, like probably the most impactful time period of my, of my life. Slowly made my way back to the States and, and had a bit of a moment where I said to myself, this is something I'm incredibly passionate about. I feel like I'm making an impact. However, I'm a little frustrated by the nonprofit and the NGO setup and settings. And how can I sort of create this impact differently? And I didn't expect that to be in hedge funds necessarily. And that's where the big 180 comes in. But I ended up meeting um, an individual who was the CEO of an asset management firm seeding macro hedge funds in Los Angeles uh, who who took a risk on me. I think in our first interview, I said to him, like, I really don't know what a hedge fund is. And I don't know why this is going to be a good fit or that I can be all that helpful to you. But he brought me in. And uh, that that's a firm called Clock Tower Group, where I started as a chief of staff and sort of made my way up uh, learning the asset management business. Uh, hedge funds, venture capital, and the like really on the spot. So it was a lot of osmosis. I used to have a notebook entitled All the Things I Don't Know, and I would expend my days listening to these conversations and writing down all these terms that I really, really didn't understand, and I'd research them at night. And that's where I learned what sort of internet investor relations is in this context. You know, I, I learned it all from him um, and ended up kind of going down this pathway of, of what is the human side of the asset management business look like? Who are the investors on the other side of the aisle? What is that EQ element that, that perhaps I can contribute to? I don't have a degree in these things. I clearly know nothing about it, but I think I know people. And, and that's how I ended up spending a lot of my years over at Clock Tower Group. Um, I've hopped around to a couple different firms since then, um, and I'm now a, an operating partner and the head of, of capital formation for Lower Carbon Capital. It's such an incredible journey, and I'm so excited to talk to you about this today because a lot of people disintermediate capital fundraising from the people aspect, but really they are so intertwined. So I assume your boss at Clock Tower Group saw the success you were having in the NGO and the not-for-profit space, which is all about people and fundraising, but for something that has a lot more impact and causes than maybe hedge funds do. But what do you think he saw in you when you applied for that role, when you had no idea and had a notebook of everything you didn't know about hedge funds? I say this now. Uh, I said this in my interview with Chris Saka when uh, I was joining Lower Carbon, which is that uh, investor relations is not rocket science by any means. It, it is to me extreme detail orientation, and it's like unbelievably high levels of EQ. I am thinking about the wants and the needs of the people, the humans, the groups who are the investors, who are our LPs and our funds at you know, a dramatically higher level than probably almost anybody at the firm. And like that, to your point, is exactly connected to understanding the other person on this other side of the aisle. And that's exactly what nonprofit service and fundraising is. I do a ton of research before I get on the phone with any allocator. Like I take unbelievable notes. So if an allocator mentions to me that like their partner happens to be pregnant with their third child and that child is due in a few months, like I keep a note, I send them a congratulatory note. It's about that human connectivity. And I think that's what is very much how I've grounded my approach for, for IR. Um, I think this is like a human to human exchange more than it's a commercial exchange. We're getting in business together for 10 plus years. That's not just uh, transactional. Like to me, that is closer to a marriage uh, than anything else. And, and I very much approach it that way, given sort of my background and where I came from. Yeah, it's totally non-transactional. You know, during your time at Clock Tower Group, how did the role of head of investor relations sort of come to be as you were hired as obviously chief of staff? And what myths about IR 
were you immediately shattering after taking on that role? So I'd say it was a, it was a evolution, and this isn't something that uh, was dropped in my lap one day. Um, I feel very lucky that the CEO of that firm is uh, somebody who is a fundraising maven. Like he is incredibly charismatic, and he focuses on the people. That is his superpower. I learned that angle of, of IR from him, and the same goes with with capital formation. I really got to sit alongside him and watch him in action, um, and be able to figure out like. What is my style? What would be my approach to doing this um, as we evolved up and out? And I think sort of my evolution happened in conjunction with the firm building. So when I joined that firm, we were seeding macro hedge funds, really, really specific product line, not the easiest product line to sell either, which was really great experience for, for someone like me who was sort of very new in the gate to do these sorts of things. But I had incredible experience sort of on the business development front for a firm. So we expanded to China capital markets. We launched fund of funds, um, funds of one, like what does it look like to build a product for a single institutional LP? What does it look like to create a product you think should exist in the world and try and convince people that that is true. What does it look like to cross the aisle and go into private to watch a Cintiq dedicated VC under the same umbrella and make a story feel cohesive across all of these spaces? And so I sort of grow, grew up into this as the firm was growing up as well. My hands therefore got to be in a lot of different pools all at the same time. Um, I'd also say that my concepts, like uh, the way I believe investor relations should be done actually comes from IR in the hedge fund world, meaning these are public markets investments for the most part. There's a lot more transparency. There's a lot more liquidity, which is dramatically different to how we approach IR in, in the VC world. And But I was on the phone with investors every single day who sometimes knew exactly what's going on inside their underlying manager's positions. That's conceptually incredibly different, right, than holding positions in early stage VC for a very, very long time. And so I, I sort of grew up thinking that, like, this is what you got to do. Like, someone trusts you uh, to manage their money and, like, you owe them some level of transparency. I've shifted that barometer, of course, going into venture capital. But um, I think like the DNA of, of what I believe to be the best way to do IR sort of comes from that hedge fund mindset, which is pretty different from, I think, a lot of what my peers are doing in VCIR today. Oh, absolutely. I came from the hedge fund world as well, covering global hedge funds and also the private equity space. And so when I started the fund, I told my LPs on fund one that I was going to send monthly updates. A lot of them told me I was crazy and they were kind of right because it did take a lot of time and there's not much to report every month, but it was about that sort of muscle building and being overly transparent to make sure they understood that I trusted their dollars and wanted to earn the respect of them for the next 25 years, not just the next, you know, 25 minutes. And so it was really important for me to be overly transparent in the beginning. And people thought I was crazy and we still do it till today, five, six years in. But, you know, you joined Lower Carbon as an operating partner in the summer of 2022 uh, as the head of capital formation, as you mentioned. And I mean, what an incredible first year you've had at the firm, raising two new funds with over $2 billion in assets under management and also announcing these newest funds in the most epic way. So what was the story you know, behind joining Lower Carbon with Chris Saka, obviously, and sort of how did the, the role come to be for you? As I mentioned, I have a lot of respect for growing up inside of, of hedge funds, at least like sort of having my first go at this um, with that context in mind. Uh, turns out like hedge funds are not my favorite thing. There's a lot of other options, I think, inside financial services that I wanted to explore. But also, as I mentioned, I was, I was sort of spending my time in a lot of different buckets simultaneously, and I wanted to go all in on one space. In addition, I, I, I genuinely wanted to kind of get back to my roots a little bit and, and find uh, you know, a slice maybe of this ecosystem. 
Um, I could, you know, be a part of an organization that's making real returns for really important institutional LPs, but maybe do that around something I care about a little bit more. Um, and that kind of brought me to, you know, a, a fork in the road um, and climate being one of those topics that I care a lot about. Climate's having a very interesting moment. There are a lot of new managers every single day popping up in the climate space, which is remarkable. But I was particularly drawn to, to lower carbon for a couple of reasons. It's pretty unbelievable to work for an industry titan. You get to to learn a lot sort of being in partnership with somebody who's, you know, one of the best early stage investors of all time. I would say that the feel, though, is really incredible here at Lower Carbon. Um, I'm not just surrounded by some of the smartest people I've ever met who are all in on climate science um, and are actually coming from the climate science space, which is is not true of all investors today in the climate space. But uh, beyond just learning from them on a, on a day-to-day basis, we're really entrepreneurial. Like This feels like a startup. It was an incredible opportunity to come in and create this role from scratch. Um, you know, Chris has had a lot of success in in the past with uh, Lowercase, which was his first firm, um, but never had a dedicated person doing, you know, what I'm doing today. And both he and Clay Dumas, the other GP here at Lower Carbon, felt the need uh, to bring in somebody to do this. And I you know, when interviewing, I felt a lot of conviction from them that this wasn't just going to be someone who's going to conveniently raise the capital, which is the hard part of the job sometimes, sort of like take a bit of the dirty work away, which is a lot of how GPs tend to, to frame this role. But I think like, I really felt from them and I feel it now a year plus in, which is that like I've been given the space and the autonomy to create, you know, an approach and a part of this business that is incredibly vital to sustaining this business. Had a lot of clean slate to do that here, which is really compelling. So uh, a lot of factors kind of brought me here. Uh, it's been an incredibly exciting, chaotic kind of first year in a bit. And as you mentioned, very, very privileged to have raised capital, some pretty serious institutional LPs and, and very tough markets. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible start for you as well. But, you know, let's talk about building those relationships because we have a lot of GPs listening today and they want to understand how to build great relationships with prospective investors, especially as they're launching their first few funds. You know, a lot of people always think if I'm a GP and I'm investing in B2B SaaS, I should get Salesforce and Microsoft and Google as strategic investors. But that is always much harder to nail. How did you go about building relationships with strategic investors for the funds you were raising for lower carbon? Yeah, I think what's really remarkable about, you know, being a dedicated climate fund is that the, you know, the LP base and what can be considered strategic is much wider than it possibly ever felt before when I was in, you know, fintech or as you mentioned, sort of SaaS focused funds. And if we're going to actually transition the entire kind of global economy a lot of different groups are going to be strategic. Um, so it creates a much wider lens for that. And, and what I mean by that is we're, we're really selective about our LP base. And in particular, we're looking for LPs who are not just actually genuinely committed to this energy transition, but believe there's going to be real alpha that can be created in this space in a venture capital context. In addition, we do like to select for LPs who we think are going to have underlying potential value to our portfolio companies. And, and that's really high on my filtering list when I'm seeking out LPs or making choices around allocations between LPs. What that means to us, for example, is I'm selecting for, you know, the endowment who's not just got a, a net zero pledge because the board of directors has seen their students protesting on campus about their, you know, oil investments and they want divestment. What that really looks like to me is an endowment who is actively going to open up the set of conversations for me and our portfolio companies around procurement for the dining hall. How can some of our portfolio companies actually 
you know, be placed inside those dining halls? What about the head of building operations for a university system? We have a bunch of portfolio companies with, you know, built environment inputs that can be really, really vital to helping a university think about uh, retrofitting their other buildings, but also thinking about new buildings in the future. So I'm actively selecting for those endowments who've made those kind of commitments and made it clear this is what the partnership with us might be able to look like versus endowments who are, you know, incredibly reputable with great track records. However, are writing a check and and that's valuable, but you know not valuable enough. I think in, in in this context that we're talking about strategics. But how are you tactically getting yourself into that conversation early on before you've you know selected them or they've selected you? Are you bringing that up like the first kind of couple conversations with the CIO at the endowment, or is it you do the background research first to see where they're you know kind of placing their best now or where they're thinking? and then decide if it's worth spending time with them. Yeah, I mean, research is everything, first of all. And um, the more prepared you are for these conversations, the the better you're going to be able to adapt your pitch to, to that audience, which I think is really key. I don't have a singular pitch that I deliver to every single potential LP I'm on the phone to. What I do is at the start of every conversation, I'm asking that LP to speak to me, give me a sense of where they are, what do their allocations look like. If you tell me you have 40 plus percent of your book in private equity, but that was 2021. This is now. What does that really look like from a new allocating perspective? You tell me you're super interested in co-investments. That sounds really nice, but how many co-investments have you actually done this year? Trying to get into a little bit of the nitty gritty of not just, again, their generalized pitch, but what's a layer beneath. A lot of groups will, will start by being like, we're so sorry, but we do have holdings in oil and gas. And that doesn't, like, we're not fussed about that at all. Like, we are not your, like, climate activists. We are a climate dedicated VC fund and we think this is going to be a transition. Like we work with we work with groups who have holdings and oil and gas. It's going to take a long time to see these transitions go past. And so I do bring up those conversations as early as possible though. Um, my approach to a capital formation generally is about building a pretty open, pretty transparent uh, relationship. Like I you know, I'm never going to be a replacement for Chris Zaka. We have plenty of potential LPs who are obviously excited to talk to him, but I'm not going to deliver that story in the same way that Chris is. I'm going to deliver the story in, in my own way. And my own way tends to be like, I'm your trusted confidant on the inside. I'm a, I speak LP is sort of how I view it. And so I, I know what that looks like when you are having to prepare your due diligence and build out your memo and build out your operational due diligence. And then you're going to go to your first committee. And then you're going to go to your second committee. And then you're probably going to a third committee. And and so I'm trying, my view is like, how do I make their lives incredibly easy? How do I set up these materials that I know can kind of be sent straight into those memo-like contexts? How do I take away a little bit of the fluff and like have that real conversation? And that goes just as much to what we're looking for in that partnership, which is, hey, like this is what we're selecting for. And this is why, like, how does that land on you? These conversations absolutely take time, but I think it's it's really important to, to bring these things up on the earlier end and because it factors into our, our allocation decisions. Absolutely. Yeah, those are great points. It's like when you're selling a large enterprise SaaS contract and you've got the chief marketing officer, let's say, as your champion, and you want to empower them when they go to their you know, C-suite or their board to approve the budget expense. It's kind of the same way of you asking your champion on the LP side, what is it you need from us to make you sound and get us through the process as quickly and as efficiently as possible? What can I do to prepare you to pitch us to your IC is a great way to frame it. You know, What advice, though, would you give to GPs looking to diversify their investor base? You know, how would you balance the needs and expectations for all the different investor types between institutional allocators and family offices? That's sort of the first thing I did when I came into Lower Carbon was really assessing like what what does the existing LP base look like and where do we want to go and why? So to me, it's it's creating a, a strategy and that being like, what is the end goal? To me, I wanted to start to transition our LP base to be predominantly filled with institutional allocators, allocators who could be 
long-term partners of ours, long-term potential partners of our underlying portfolio companies. And as we've, as we've mentioned, this kind of strategic business development angle is the really important kind of third prong of our ultimate strategy. The next question then is, uh, how, do, how do we find them? How do we build those relationships? How do we divide, diversify away from you know where we came from and, and where we want to go? As I, as I sort of alluded to before, I think it's about really understanding what are the needs of an institutional LP, like a sovereign wealth fund or a pension that look incredibly different to a high net worth in a family office. And they are pretty different. Their processes are different. Their decision making is different. But the value that you uh, you know elicit as being one of their positions inside of their portfolio is really, really different. And I think that needs to sort of filter up to your, your ultimate strategy. So to me, you know, I look at sort of the endowment landscape, and that's why I said to myself, endowments are overallocated right now. We all know that the denominator effect and lack of liquidity is really, really painful. Most of these groups are just straight up not allocating, um, you know, for, for a set period of time. But I do know there are groups out there who in particular are looking for climate and, and where can I sort of build that nexus around what's going to be value additive for us and for them. So it takes a lot of sort of like baseline research. I constantly, you know, I'm advising other GPs, like you have to find ways to build constraints on your your allocator universe and and work around that so you don't waste your time right like i'm one person i cover all of our existing lps i cover all the potential lps that might exist in the universe every type every geography i, I can't boil down that universe and, and spend my time on this every single day by thinking about this globally but what i need to think about is how am i going to cut those conversations where i think they're not going anywhere to not waste my time and um, but again how am i kind of looking for the lower hanging fruit so to me it's a it's a lot of like backline research um, combined with I, I kind of create goals for myself. So um, I'll say to myself, you know, for the month of January, I am looking for OCIO groups in the Midwest area who are interested in mapping the climate space. It's extremely specific, but it, that creates sort of a nice box for me to start doing that research and being able to reach out to those LPs who are going to, again, fit my ultimate strategy, which is diversifying. They do so in a way that I think is going to be the best and effective use of my time. So you're trying to pre-qualify and disqualify, you know, before you even meet with some of these LPs to prioritize, obviously, your time. But, you know, given the time we're in right now, for a lot of emerging managers, all the, you know, LPs are saying we're over-allocated or we're putting a pause on allocations until Q2 or Q3 of next year. How do you maintain an effective communication style with those potential LPs so that you don't, you know, fall at the back of the line in case somebody else is obviously engaging with them a lot more frequently than you? while focusing on the near-term possibilities of ones that will close in the next quarter or two? I think about this as I'm always fundraising. Whether the funds are open or closed, we're, we're really close to doing a close or we're not. Um, it's it's a very long tail um, that I'm always managing in conjunction with the near-term closers who are going to need different things from me. If we're just focusing on sort of more of that long-term tail of potential LPs, to me, it's all about manufactured touch points. You have to create opportunities to continue to feel relevant to that LP and Ideally, you're offering them something. That's not a, you had a conversation with a potential LP two months ago who said, we're not allocating and we won't allocate to first-time managers who don't have more than $25 million of AUM. And if I fall into all those categories and then I send an email in two months and say, hey, this is what I'm up to, that really 
didn't move the needle. It didn't change the conversation at all. Rather, for example, in our space, I'm trying to be a useful resource around climate. There's a lot of allocators out there that are frankly just not ready to allocate the climate. That's changing dramatically in real time, but there's a very large group I call the climate curious batch. Uh, We start every LP conversation with them telling me they're mapping the climate space, which means a lot of things to a lot of different LPs. And I see myself as like, I want to help lead that conversation. I want to be their trusted partner that helps them map that. I'm going to send their resources of best ways to find intel, new managers, qualify those managers. I'm going to make introductions to a bunch of other managers who may or may not be raising, but I think might really fit their profile. I am happy to serve as a reference. I will send portfolio companies for their you know, direct investment interests. I'm not selling. Um, what I'm doing, though, is I'm providing value um, to start continue to build that relationship and build it in a more trusted fashion so that potentially maybe it's the next fundraise. Like We might be a better fit for one another. Maybe they are allocating more heavily. Maybe they're moving out of the climate curious space into the climate allocating space. But I view it as, as trying to step out of the box a little bit and try and deliver value with every one of those manufacturer touch points. I keep a, a dedicated list for every single one of these long tail prospects of the next date I'm going to be interacting with them. And that's a totally manufactured assigned day that I came up with have a conversation and I'm thinking to myself, how did that go? When do I think an appropriate touch point would be? What kind of touch point am I going to do? And I assign that into my CRM. So I'm tracking these things in real time all the time. So I know like when is the next touch point I intend to have with them and what might that look like? What are you using for your CRM? We are in a little bit of flux here at Lower Carbon, but um, have used the likes of Airtable Affinity. Yeah, same with us too. Absolutely in flux as well. <laughs> so you're, you know, you're saying basically offer them something kind of like at our firm, we offer, you know, direct uh, investment opportunities, co investment opportunities, you know, events that we're hosting, private dinners, family office networking. We actually have this thing we call the Ripple LP Connect portal, which is where LPs in our portfolio, in our in our funds, share interest of things they care about, whether it's venture capital or anything outside of it, healthcare, crypto, uh, real estate, insurance, who knows what they're looking for, hedge funds. And we actually introduce them to other LPs in our fund to meet each other, to go for coffees or lunches and get to know each other and do other deals outside of our portfolio company or our funds to build relationships, to know that you know we were the ones that connected them, even though it doesn't economically benefit us. And a lot of LPs like that. So that's a way to kind of create the ripple effect within our own LP mix. Uh, is something we've been trying to do. You know, but in what ways do you think personal branding for GPs you know, really helps in capital formation? Venture capital is really an interesting space because there are a lot of emerging managers, but it takes a really long time to figure out like who's actually going to be good at this job and who's not, right? Track records take many, many years to form. What that means is therefore like you have to think about setting yourself apart as, as a GP before your track records can speak itself. And I think like what we've coalesced around, yeah, is this idea of, of personal GP branding. You know, I think some of it's really effective. I some some of it's probably not that effective. Um, it really depends on the the LP on the other side of the audience. But to me, I, I really think it's about clearly and and well articulating your edge. So if we think about this in a pitch deck all the way to when a GP is featured on you know a podcast or they're putting out a blog, it always boils down to like, what is your edge as a GP? And I think a lot of pitch decks don't answer that question very successfully. There shouldn't be a whole paragraph to tell us what your edge is. Like, it really should be one sentence. This is like the clear takeaway you want an LP to walk away with, which is like, why is this GP different? And why can they reliably generate alpha from me over the course of 10 to 13 to 15 years? That's that's a tough question generally for LPs to answer, given the amount of noise. I think that's around LPs who are looking for clear answers to, to what a GP is and what their strategy is. So I think branding can be useful in those ways. And, um, you know, ultimately track record is what's going to matter here most, like returns, 
returns tend to be everything for a lot of LPs, especially in these markets. But as we said, where where returns are going to be quote unquote, a little bit delayed, I think LPs are really paying attention to your edge as a GP, but also your edge in, in sourcing, especially for early stage. I think a lot of the LPs see that as a, as a direct uh, sort of bridge of does their edge or does their branding help them source from unique channels or help them source from very holistic channels. If you have the best deal flow in the world, hopefully you're then making the best selection decisions, which ultimately, ideally, should lead to you know better return outcomes. I think a lot of LPs do think about it that way. So they try and translate, I think, that branding. We like are very lucky here. We have, again, a GP with an incredible track record, uh, an incredible brand sort of just start you know around this firm. But what we focused on is, is not just the GP's branding, but the firm branding. And if anyone's ever gone to the Lower Carbon website, you're going to see like our language and the way that we utilize storytelling as a firm is particular and it's very unique. We have a point of view on what we think climate investing should look like um, and we are not shy to, to share that around. That is something that's going to rub LPs the right way or it's going to rub LPs the wrong way. And it depends on what your point of view on branding and marketing is. But I can't tell you how many conversations I begin where the LPs like, I saw your website it's really interesting or it's really loud. It's different. it's different. And you can tell they're like a little uncomfortable. They don't know what to do with it. They definitely don't want to show the CIO and the, you know, the board, the website, but there's something there. And there's something to me, like that's really effective. Like we're having this conversation, right? Like how many other firms can say that they're going to have a three to five minute conversation to kick things off because they've actually paid attention to their website aside from the logos. That's something we put at the centerfold of, of how we're telling the story as a firm it makes its way to every single LP letter. Like Chris and Clay, our GPs, write these LP letters. They are significant. They are built around storytelling in the same kind of way. Like our LPs tell us their their favorite, you know, letters they've ever received. And like they're on their edge of their seats waiting to receive them consistently. They are not cookie cutter. And, and this translates down to also how we select for founders and how we support founders. The climate space is filled with incredible founders who tend to be often very smart and very technical. That doesn't mean they're always super successful at telling their own stories, especially when thinking about their go-to-market strategy. We think that's a superpower of ours and the LPs seem to assign that to us as well. And so we spend time helping these founders think about how to tell their own stories, sort of amongst this backdrop of, of how we tell stories here at, at Lower Carbon as a firm. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more direct than saying we're unfucking the planet, <laughs> but that is obviously what Chris and the team wants to say, how have you leveraged uh, events like your AGM to uh, interact with potential potential LPs or interested LPs for future funds? AGMs have gone through an interesting transition. I think about these as like AGMs pre-pandemic and AGMs post-pandemic. What that means to me is that, you know, AGMs used to be this like exciting flurry, right? It was lots of people flying into this particular space. As you mentioned, like LPs love to meet their peers at AGMs. They tend to think it's very valuable to meet the entire team of, you know, a VC that they've invested in where they usually only meet the GPs or someone like me or maybe some of the senior partners. But it's very rare they get to see uh, the, the team in its entirety, but really like they like to hang out with their peers and they also like to meet founders. And like that, that's what the value add tended to be for AGMs. We hit the pandemic and it turns into sort of a virtual setting, which like boiled it down to the cookie cutter version of AGMs, which is like, this is what we do as a reminder of our strategy. Here's our returns. These are a couple of companies that are doing really well. And that's only so valuable, um, I think, to, to the LP. So like, we think really hard about how to totally change up that setting. To me, as I mentioned, like it's so much value to meet the actual portfolio companies. So what does a field trip look like to 
the BioForge for one of our companies that's producing enzyme-based chemicals relative to petrochemicals. That's something our LPs get jazzed about. Like they want to touch and feel and experience these things. We throw our team into it. We have a conversation that's hands-on about it. And it doesn't have to be a two and a half day AGM experience to really generate that kind of a value. So we're trying to push the boundaries on on those sorts of things. I think they can be useful tools. I think you mentioned this in your question, but I'd always think about bringing prospective LPs though into these gatherings, whether it's an AGM, whether it's a dinner, whatever it is, these prospective LPs take a really long time to build relationships. I've built relationships with some of these LPs for many, many, many years before they're actually going to allocate. And some of them uh, need to see you in action a little bit. We just sort of feel that element. As you mentioned too, it's like they'll walk away from that dinner knowing like they met these two people because they were introduced to you by said VC or by said GP. So I think there's a lot of value to be added there. However, it needs to be particular. LPs get a lot of invites to a lot of things. It's being really thoughtful on like, how are you tagging that long tail of prospects? Like, who do you really think are going to be your high delta closers for the next round of fundraising? And um, who's riding the wave here? And a lot of LPs do that. Like they get to gain a lot of intelligence from these conversations and from these dinners and probably are never going to allocate. So I try and be really thoughtful about what that line is, is going to look like. You know, speaking of allocation, you know, when do you think it's the right time to bring up allocation sizing with LPs and conversations? And how do you bring it up uh, with people, you know, to say, are you a $1 million allocation, 25 million? Do you get that out pretty early to know where they sit? Or are you treated all the same? Yeah, I go early. They know the answer. They might not want to tell you the answer, and but they're not going to be offended, most likely, if you ask. You got to ask in the right way, though, to, to your point. Like, this is a delicate dance. Meaning, like, in a very first conversation, when I'm asking the LP, like, what their climate strategy is or is not, I'm also asking what their typical check size is. I'm asking what that typical check size is, was in 2021 and what it was this year. I'm trying to gain that barometer of how things have changed and what that looks like. They also tend to qualify these things. So for a quote unquote emerging space like climate or like AI or an emerging manager, that that typical check size tends to be discounted, especially in these markets. And so if they typically write five to $10 million checks, often they're going to bring that down to a one to $3 million range for a new manager or a new space. And that gives me, again, that ability to sort of take that note. I feel like as we're getting into what I'd call like deeper diligence, I, again, try and really build that trusted relationship with the lead on the diligence on their side. That's a person like I hope I can send a message to and get on the phone with. And I'm answering their plethora of questions to, again, fill out their memo. And at the same time, I'm saying like, hey, just want to know where you guys stand. Like, should this thing go through? Like, what kind of sizing are we talking about here? If you've given them enough to work with and you're not asking in this way that is like, are you in? are you out? Like, this is it like, or bust. Um, I tend to get pretty clear answers from these, from these allocators, but it requires, I think the upfront, like investing in that relationship to a certain extent to really get some clarity beyond, you know, what their typical check size might look like. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to start at the first meeting with what's your typical check size when you're still building the relationship, but it should be something you obviously want to talk about and get out of the way because they do know the answer to it, as you said. But it just comes out as it has to come across as a delicate way of phrasing it. Speaking of, you know, capital allocators and obviously IR and heads of capital, what stage of a fund's growth do you believe it's the right time to have a dedicated head of capital? Look, this is going to vary a lot based on size of the firm, amount of GPs, uh, profile of the GPs, et cetera. Uh, that being said, I'd sort of like bring this question back to the GPs, which is like, what are you looking to get out of this person? Uh, I think there's a pretty wide spectrum in VC IR today. It's sort of still an evolving ecosystem. Again, it looks really different from what it, what this looks like in hedge funds. This is newer. Like A lot of firms have never had a head of IR capital formation, have never thought to 
haven't had the resources to. It isn't as standard, though I think it's going to become a lot more standard over time. Uh, you've seen, especially in, in sort of late 2021, a flurry of GPs sort of like waking up and being like, oh man, funners are exhausting. I hate this. I hate talking to LPs. Like, I'll just hire this person and they could do all these things for me. Like, that sounds fantastic. I don't find that to be like the most successful approach to these sorts of things, unfortunately. But I think, as I mentioned, and I've got a great setup here at Lower Carp and that I'm, I'm really thankful for, like an actual GP who sees this as a potential for value add for the firm, right? This is a perspective that I can bring in, not just to capital raising or management of the LPs, but when we're thinking about new products or we're thinking about selecting a fund administrator, or we're making an investment that like might feel like it's on the edges of our strategy that I have valued out in all of these conversations. Like I sit in our IC meetings for a reason that this is, this is really important as a firm and that tends to be more successful. What I would say is that like, A, again, you need to have resources for a senior hire like any other hire you're considering. So you tend to see this happen more at your like we've raised two or three funds sort of a phase. We're looking to increase the size of the next fund tends to be a very typical sort of profile that I hear for GPs looking for a head of IR. And I think there's a pretty wide spectrum of seniority. Um, as I mentioned, like I'm the only person who does this as the firm. I'm pretty autonomous in my work, I become the go-to for all of our LPs. We're having conversations that I try and sort of manage in such a fashion that like I decide where, yeah, we should elevate this up to the GPs or I can manage this. I can get this done super fast. And like, they know they can call me and get an answer immediately, which is a lot of a value to add. There are more junior folks who can be your sort of researchers, as we mentioned, do a lot of that back channeling, figure out who might be the right targets, manage your CRM really, really well. They're probably not going to be on the front lines taking that first conversation. I take all conversations here at, at Lower Carbon and again, sort of pull in the GPs where I think it's going to be fitting. Um, so there's sort of a different sort of two buckets, I'd say, of sonority that tends to be part of the calculation of bringing folks in um, on the capital formation side for for a GP. And ultimately, again, I think it really depends on like what your goal is as a firm. If you're looking to rinse and repeat, I don't think it's all that useful necessarily to have a dedicated person here, but you want to expand, diversify the LP base, make a shift. It's been really challenging um, for whatever set of reasons, like having a dedicated person who can kind of take that mind share away from you or in partnership with you, perhaps, tends to be successful. Yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. Obviously, fund three, fund four, trying to raise a much larger fund from more institutions or endowments makes sense. But I got to ask you, you know, one thing we've definitely stayed away from at our firm is placement agents. Do you have any opinions or thoughts on firms engaging with them? Even hiring an in-house person like me, I, I, I give this advice all the time. Like you can't hire someone for their Rolodex. It doesn't work. It's not a one-to-one -one translation of because that person claims they know or got a ticket from said LP at a past firm that it's going to work here. I think that's like a misnomer, unfortunately, that that exists in a lot of these hiring processes. Same thing goes with placement agents. Um, it's not a one-to-one -one translation experience, unfortunately. It's going to be a little bit more so, but I would take it with a grain of salt. I personally haven't worked with a ton of these for, for a bunch of reasons in the past, but my advice is if you're going to hire one of these groups, like you need to do it for a very specific set of reasons. For example, I wouldn't say you should hire someone because you're having a hard time raising your whole fund and you hope they're just going to fill it for you. Rather, I really want to bring in corporate Japanese investors and we don't have anyone on the ground in Asia. We have you know, a lack of connectivity in that space. There are cultural barriers. There are regulatory and compliance issues with raising in a place like Japan. It's pretty complex. Let's bring on experts who are fully embedded in all of those sort of verticals who we think can translate against those Japanese corporates. That to me is a reason to hire a placement agent. And I think it's going to have a, 
a better sort of realm of success. There's a there's a certain connotation that has been associated with placement agents, um, you know, for LPs, which I think is changing. Uh, historically, this is sort of quote unquote looked down upon a little bit, especially for younger and more emerging managers with smaller teams. If if the GPs can't raise their funds, should we really be allocating to them? Right? Like, have they garnered enough trust um, that they need to bring on a placement agent? I think that's slowly becoming less and less true. I also think that was like a bit of a myth that that didn't necessarily have have legs to it. And in VC, a lot of the bigger firms do this. It's not such a big deal. It's about being transparent. So when asked by your LPs who are doing diligence, they're going to want to know, like, you need to be transparent of like, we're working with this group. And this is why. And I think you're pretty set from there. Now, those are good points. I want to understand this research part that you really focus on between like, obviously, managing your existing LP relationships who are LPs and current funds versus doing research on prospective LPs. So talk to me about how you're like, tracking prospective LPs and the continuous research you're trying to do. They're moving from one firm to another. Like how often are you spending time doing research on prospective LPs versus maintaining existing LP relationships? It's almost probably 50-50 on like capital formation time spent relative to managing LPs. I think that ups and flows based on what's going on. But yeah, we're not fundraising right now. And I, I think I had, I don't know, eight prospective LP calls yesterday. That's how I view this is like, this is a constant flow. I try and create sort of an agenda for myself that is easier to uh, nibble on. So I say to myself, I've worked historically with Canadian pensions. I know that a lot of them have both sort of executive level interest in climate, but increasingly so in their private equity and their venture portfolios. At face value, this makes a lot of sense to start doing a little bit more research on should I be making a trip out to Toronto and and Montreal? Who are the players that are going to make sense uh, to do that with right now? I'll sort of build this like really macro list. So I'll start with like, who are the largest and most active allocators in private equity and venture capital across the Canadian landscape? And a lot of this is, is Typical and obvious, right? So if you are tracking, you know, things like Axios Pro Rata and you see the kinds of folks who are doing direct deals on a lot of these spaces, there are plenty of names that pop up all the time. I track a lot of those names in this like very, very long list that is like my ideal allocator list. And so I keep them based on geography and I plot names in all the time. That means when I'm going back to sort of refine my Canadian lists and filtering for Canada and pulling out these names. And then I'm starting to do sort of more deep dive research on some of these allocators in particular. Is it, you know, they were allocating very heavily, but they decided actually to pivot their strategy and just do direct deals because they're a large pension who's got the capital to do that. And they've shied away from their fund management strategy. Some of these allocators in Canada only like to allocate to funds who are local. That would be a constraint that I would sort of like X them off of my list. And so I'm spending a lot of time just, again, trying to create those constraints of like, who should I not be going after? And what are the reasons for it? Once I've like boiled down that list to be quote unquote, a little bit more of a short list. The next like real filter for me is like, how am I going to get to them? And that can take a little bit more time, but that's sort of, that's, that's the money. That's like the special piece of this, which is that, you know, I do a lot of LinkedIn stalking, for example, of figuring out like who in my network um, may or may not know these people, like who have I interacted with previously that might have a connection or might have some insults for me on, is this a good or, or not good fit? I'd also say that to this point, like, a tool that I use ever since I started in the IR space is befriending other folks who do the same thing as I do. Other heads of IR and heads of capital formation. I don't see this as competitive. I see this as like 
we are both selling products that may or may not be the right fit for the allocator. The allocator chooses that product. Awesome. That's a better fit for them. And I'm not. And that's totally cool. So I like to do a lot of like paying it forward. I make a lot of intros for other heads of IR when they're going places and doing things or, you know, it's an LP of mine that they want to get to know. And ideally when I ask, right, I'm going to Canada and there's this one allocator that can't figure out how to get to, but I know this person knows them. I make the ask and it makes it, it, you know, more helpful for me to get in front of these folks. That's great advice. It's not something we talk about a lot, but it's like, like absolutely um, a network I've built since I've started. Yeah, I've had a lot of GPs, emerging managers ask me for intros to family offices and I've had the same done for me for people in the US. You know, we co-host dinners with other emerging managers. Uh, in fact, one of our uh, institutional LPs who's raising you know money for their fund of funds is uh, leveraging some of our family office networks to potentially meet with for their fund of funds capital. So it, it's a it's a flywheel. It's very incestuous, and a lot of people helping each other is a good thing. I got to ask though, you know, how do you collect feedback from your LPs on what they want to see and what they don't want to see, and maybe updates and things like that? As transparent as as I'm trying to be, I'm hoping they're going to be back, and that that works well with some LPs, and it works you know less well with other LPs, and that's totally okay. I have you know sort of a, a trusted group, we'll say, who like I'll pick up the phone to and be like, hey, like I want to know what you thought of that. Where did we miss the mark? Was that useful? Like, did you like the 18 page update with like the very lower carbon s language, or like were there other things you were seeking that we didn't get to? There's a lot of that special intel that you're going to get in those ways, and um, that I can't really get uh, in such an honest fashion in other forms of feedback. So I track like all of the reasons we might not have won a ticket from an LP. When they say no to us, why did they say no? I have like a drop down menu of all these different buckets I've created is why they said no. And then have a notes field on why they said no. And sometimes like the reason they're giving me for why they said no is not the real reason. And I'm trying to sort of get that layer deeper and figure out like why that is or isn't the real case. And again, same ideas. I've ideally built a relationship where I get the formal no and then I'll call somebody and be like, hey, can we just like talk about what that actually was? And I find that to be pretty useful. Same idea on things like co-investments or direct investments. This has been an area that LPs you know, at large have been very interested in utilizing their, their GPs to get access to more direct deals um, in these markets. Whether or not that translates to actual deals done is like a bit of a different question, but it is something they are seeking and they're seeking that information slow. That's a lot to track, right? And so I have a pretty robust system of tracking, like what is their co-investment appetite? What do they like to see within what bounds, what staging, what kind of revenue thresholds are we talking about? What does their process look like if a decision is going to need to get done? Is this something they can do on their own or is this going to go to five boards and they're going to need five months to do this? Do they need an introduction to the management team or can they actually get this done without that kind of an introduction? So I try and ask all these kinds of questions that I'm then again tracking in my CRM so that I really know like what can I feed them, right? You're t- we are talking about these manufacturer touch points. I have a company that comes up that might be raising perhaps this prospective LP who didn't allocate to the fund. I'd be an amazing fit for as a direct investor. And I can go back to my system and kind of filter for these things and send out these kind of uh, opportunities to those LPs. Wow. The amount of data and information you're tracking is unbelievable. How do you see the landscape of venture capital changing in terms of investor expectations and preferences? And you know, what's your perspective on the future of capital formation of venture capital specifically? Markets are tough. Uh, it's tough for portfolio companies to raise. It's tough for GPs to raise. I think it's going to feel tough for a little while here, to say the least. Like we we had the uh, holy grail of of you know GP capital raising perhaps behind us, and this is going to be a different market. What that also means, though, is I think LPs are also going to normalize their returns expectations a little bit in this this you know exciting era that is behind us. Like we went from GPs needing to you know return funds at like two or three x to 
this LP expectation, it's going to be a 5X or up to a 10X. Like that is extremely typical and very, very unlikely for most GPs if you look at really the, the benchmark data. So with that toughness, I think some of that will will come down and be back to um, a more rational place, which I think is is positive. You know, I think that like this is a, and, and all the emerging managers who listen to this podcast still is like, this is a challenging time for micro VCs and emerging managers, but it's also an opportunity. I, I have heard from tons of LPs who call it, have their like blue chip managers on sort of one side of their strategy. And they're looking for niche, smaller managers and sort of satellite positions who are specialists to kind of fill out the rest of their strategy. And there are buckets for that. LPs view this this period of time as they're kind of taking the power back a little bit. So they have the opportunity to allocate to emerging managers, sort of achieving, achieving some of the constraints, the side letter requests that they tend to like that they weren't really achieving in the past few years. So there is money earmarked right now for emerging managers. It, it's hard to access, but it, it exists more than it has in the last few years, which will be an interesting dynamic. You know, I'd say that uh, we, we talked about this before, but um, I think something like my role is going to be further cemented as uh, sort of a, a more typical role you're going to see across many of the VCs, not just your very, very large ones. But I think this expectation around transparency, not just from a regulatory and compliance angle, which we're seeing more and more come down from the likes of the SEC around what it means to manage a, a VC fund in an institutional way. Um, but this expectation that there is going to be more transparency needed between a GP and an LP, like this has happened in other funds, uh, fund structures like hedge funds, I think will continue to happen in, in venture capital, which makes VC capital formation folks a little bit more important than we have been. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And as emerging manager, micro VC, whatever you want to call us, you know, it's been obviously very challenging to raise, you know, additional capital at the institutional level, but it's also been much more transparent. And I think a lot more conversations are happening for us that are separating us from the herd because so many people are giving up or the tourist VCs are leaving. So the real diehards like us are having a lot better conversations that are way more uh, effective at building long-term relationships. So it does feel like the tide has changed for the ones who are really sticking through and building a niche focus on the strategies at hand. Uh, So I'm excited. And I agree that the IR role is definitely going to be cemented and venture capital for the future. So I appreciate you sharing that. You know, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of a podcast called My Climate Journey. And, you know, I wasn't in a climate-dedicated role before coming to Lower Carbon. This is an incredible sort of on-ramp to, to everything there is to know about um, what it means to invest or be a GP, as well as a portfolio founder in the climate space. And um, we've co-invested with the firm a fair amount. So a lot of our portfolio companies get featured, which is which is always lovely to hear them tell their own stories. Very cool. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog? I mentioned this before, but I spend a lot of my time trying to be a resource to LPs as they're figuring out the climate space and a resource I've found to be really useful for myself, but also, uh, you know, for those LPs, it's called CTVC. It's basically sort of a deep dive on exciting themes in the climate tech space, but has a really unbelievable mapping of GPs across the space. It's an incredible way to sort of filter um, and keep track of like all the new GPs that have come into the climate space over the last few years. So I read that pretty religiously and I send it around a fair amount. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I, I, I do the same thing with Strictly VC, where I just scan all the GPs that are writing checks into all the companies that we would be, you know, obviously co-investing with or look at follow-on investments and track them as well through that. So it is a great resource to do those kind of things. Next is your favorite tech gadget. 
I'm a big reader, so I'm always pretty attached to my Kindle. It's like with me wherever I go. Um, but I'd say, you know, to pull in the climate angle yet again, uh, we've invested in a company called Mill, which is basically like a magic trash can. Um, it's super sleek looking. You can throw in um, what historically has probably been your compost, um, but instead of your compost hanging out for a few days and starting to smell bad, it kind of magically turns uh, that compost into what looks like some white powder. You know, it takes about a month for us to fill up a mill and you know once the mill is filled up I can use the app and ask for you know my, my white sort of compound grounds to be picked up uh, that gets picked up outside I leave it at the door and, and it becomes chicken feed it's sort of like a mainstay in the kitchen that I can never imagine leaving the kitchen a month to fill it up so I have the Lumi L-O-M-I which is the more kind of home version and I just run that every night and then throw it in the garden you have one that piles up over a month yeah exactly doesn't smell Oh my God. Yeah, magic. How big is it? Uh, like a normal trash can. Wow, that's <laughs> crazy. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. Uh, next is your favorite new trend. I think I know the answer, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be cliche about this, but um, it has been very fun to be the head of capital formation in a time where climate and AI tend to be the things that LPs like to allocate to. I'm a big fan of it. <laughs> it's been very useful. You know, I think we'll see this trend uh, be a mainstay over the next few years. How about dressing more cowboy western? Is that a trend that you picked up? Um, I've tried. It's not so much my thing, um, but but luckily Chris has got that under control. So so we've kept that here. I'll okay, good. Next is your favorite book. I'm a big fan of The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. It's a book I read when I was a teenager um, and have multiple copies of and like to reread whenever I can. What's it about? It's kind of like an enlightenment sort of existential read. So pretty philosophical. Um, he passed away recently, but um, the the author has written a fair amount in the space. Sort of takes me away from my day to day and and you know use a different part of my brain. Well, very cool. And it dovetails well into our last question: your favorite life lesson. So I'm I'm gonna sort of give tribute to my dad here, but um, I grew up with a lot of very serious health issues, and and I you know remember getting out of the hospital when I was when I was very young, we were just like sitting on my bedroom floor, and my dad came to me and he was like, look, like life can feel like a ladder, like you go up and down, but there's always sort of rungs on the ladder to to keep going up, and that's kind of how I think about uh, facing adversity is is I'm trying to keep my head up and and figure out like what it's gonna take me to get to to that next rung of the ladder. Wow, that's very sage advice. And thank you so much for joining us today in the tank with Ashton Rosen from Lower Carbon Capital. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, Follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.